What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Tuesday, May 3rd. I'm Gideon Resnick. And I'm Josie Duffy Rice, and this is What a Day, where we're glaring at anyone who recommended Hillbilly Elegy as J.D. Vance competes in today's Ohio primary for U.S. Senate. Would you rather never see a movie again, or the only movie you can see is Hillbilly Elegy? 100% never see a movie again. No question. Okay, all right. On today's show, COVID cases in South Africa point to perhaps a fifth surge in the country. Plus, international figure skating officials proposed upping the minimum age for competitors from 15 to 17. But first, we want to update you on a developing story as we go to record on Monday night at 9.30 Eastern. Politico has obtained what it says are leaked documents showing the Supreme Court is poised to strike down the constitutional right to abortion. The court was expected to issue its judgment next month, but Politico got its hand on a draft majority opinion by Justice Samuel Alito. In it, he writes that two landmark rulings, 1973's Roe v. Wade, as well as 1992's Planned Parenthood v. Casey, quote, must be overruled. I should caution that this is not an official confirmed decision yet, and this has yet to be reported elsewhere, but we'll link to the story in our show notes so you can read it as well. If any part of this decision is accurate, It is a devastating moment for bodily autonomy. It's a devastating moment for pregnant people or Mm -hmm. people who might want to be pregnant in the future. It's a generational change in how we think about freedom to make our own choices. It's impossible to wrap my head around. Yeah. Very soon, we'll bring you more with the hosts of Cricket Strict Scrutiny to get answers to all of our questions on this development. And they'll also be coming out with an emergency episode later today. So subscribe now to get it as soon as it's online. Um, But that's what we know right now. Yeah. For now, we're going to move to a big headline from yesterday. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in New York City voted against joining the Amazon Labor Union, or ALU. As a reminder, on Staten Island, there is basically this set of warehouses. One of them, JFK 8, voted to unionize just a month ago in what was a really historic victory for the upstart union, the first Amazon facility to be unionized. The facility that just voted last week is called LDJ 5. And the results of that vote were announced yesterday. So according to the National Labor Relations Board, there were around 1,600 workers at LDJ5 who were eligible to vote. Out of those who did, it was 618 against joining the union and 384. So on its face, quite a lopsided result there. The president of ALU, Chris Smalls, who has been a guest on our show a number of times before, tweeted shortly after the vote was announced, quote, nothing changes, we organize Do not be discouraged or sad. Be upset and talk to your coworkers. Well, that's a positive message. And we know that this is a process and it's still early. But can you talk about what some of the differences are between these two facilities and how, if at all, those differences contributed to the results that we got? Yeah, there's been some really good writing, I think, on this. So when it comes to LDJ5, Alex Press at the news website Jacobin reported that for one thing, 
there are an overwhelming number of part-time workers there. I think the ratio at times is something like four to one. Uh, the union also spent a lot of time trying to get that first warehouse, JFK 8, unionized, which by nature seeded some ground for Amazon to start pushing anti-union agendas to LDJ5 and to get union-busting tactics going. It was difficult for ALU to have the time, opportunity, resources to do all that at once. And lastly, JFK 8 is a fulfillment center, uh, which means that is the place where workers are packing items into boxes for each order. LDJ 5, on the other hand, is a sorting center where those boxes are sorted based on where they're getting inevitably shipped out to. Manual labor is often physically taxing, of course, but Press's reporting suggests that work at the fulfillment center is uniquely overwhelming and grueling. And that's what you hear from um, so many people who are in that fulfillment center. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How is the company responding to this? How is Amazon responding to this? And how is the union responding to this? Kind of how we think. Um, when it comes to the warehouse JFK 8, where the unionization vote was successful, Amazon has actually objected to the results with the National Labor Relations Board. Last Friday, the board granted a hearing on May 23rd for all of the company's objections to it. I think there are something like 25. The expectation really is that Amazon, like any other company, would likely keep at this tactic to delay bargaining for a contract, which is what the union ALU has been asking for. So we may very likely see additional unionizing efforts in other facilities, though, given that ALU said they have heard from tons and tons of places around the country about organizing uh, since they were successful at their first facility. So Gideon, you've been following labor news for months and years at this point. And so yesterday's update, I think it's a good moment for us to take a step back and take stock of where we are. It might not have been great for union organizers, but overall, we've seen so many workers in all kinds of industries come together and try to unionize. This was your 2022 prediction, you may remember, at the beginning of this year, and it is coming true. I think you were the only one with a positive prediction. Mine yeah. is also coming true, <laughs> but mine was depressing. So, Yeah, I guess I'll take that as something to hold on to. But yeah, I mean, you know, given all of that and given everything else that we've all noticed about this, uh, last Friday I caught up with labor journalist Kim Kelly, who is the author of the newly released book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, uh, which I do highly recommend picking up. It is great. Uh, we talked about what is happening at these massive companies like Amazon and Starbucks, how that fits into the context of labor history overall, and what this moment actually could mean. One thing that stands out to me is that this is all really exciting and incredible and wonderful, and I'm so excited people are talking about it. And these workers are also building on such a long history of organizing. And a lot of the tactics that they've used to organize these successful efforts, those are really old. Uh, you know, one of the, the most successful things that the organizers of the Amazon Labor Union, like Chris Malls, Derek Palmer, they organized kind of in the break room and in the parking lot, very worker to worker, very intimate, really. They shared food, food from different cultures. There's a very concerted effort to show, like, we're in this together. This is a community. This is us against the bosses, us against Amazon. And it reminded me of the strike in 1946 in Hawaii, the Great Sugar Strike. The way that the workers won that strike was by organizing in that same way. At that point, most of the sugarcane plantations on the islands were owned by these white guys in the mainland, and they were worked by native Hawaiians and Chinese and Japanese and Korean and Filipino, Puerto Rican in the plantation themselves, they were separated into different camps and they were treated differently. They were paid differently. And during the strike, the way that they ultimately won was by bridging those divides, by 
making sure they were translators so everyone knew what was happening. They just fostered that very real, genuine connection that then led them to victory. I'm really curious. You were covering a lot of what was happening in Bessemer. A lot of the conversation about this has sort of been like, are the tactics of the Amazon labor union in New York kind of the way to go in Bessemer? What is the answer there? Do we have an answer? I think we're probably still going to be asking that question for a little while, right? We had the, you know, JFK 8, they won. But it's still kind of early in this longer trench war against Amazon. Well, I was in Birmingham uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had lunch with Isaiah Thomas, one of the worker organizers at Amazon there, who had been helping lead this second effort. And the thing that really struck me was even if they get knocked down again, it still doesn't erase the work they put in. And it doesn't erase the impact that it has had on people like Isaiah. He's just this, such a wonderful and like inspiring young man. He's like 20 years old. He's in college. He took a couple of semesters off from college to get involved in the union effort. And he's changed his whole focus. Like he's going to be a labor lawyer now. Wow. Yeah, he's going to go on to help so many people because of this effort. And just seeing what happened in Staten Island, like I think there's a lot that those two groups can learn from one another. And I think that whoever else in whatever other Amazon warehouse that'll be next who is watching, like, there's no one way to form a union. There's no one way to win a strike. Right. It's all building on top of other people's work and their efforts and their sweat and blood. Yeah, and in the meantime, there's also what's going on at Starbucks that you talked about, too. Mm. Something that's been, like, really interesting to me is trying to ascertain, like, the impact of these efforts happening at, like, some of the most well-known companies, the Starbucks and the Amazons of the world. And what that means for how, like, the general public is, like, digesting this and, like, responding to it. What do you think about that? That's a huge open-ended question. But, like, it's... <laughs> right? But I, I've been thinking about it a lot because, like you said, it's – because, I mean, companies, massive, like, oligarchical uh, corporations, rather, like Amazon and Starbucks, they've kind of become part of the fabric of a lot of people's daily lives. Like, mm-hmm. most people know about them. You know, all the things that happen within the labor movement, they're maybe not as visible to just – a random person on the street who has their own stuff going on, right? Like totally. the Teamsters are always striking. I mean, right now there are members of Strippers United on strike in mm-hmm. North Hollywood right now. And I think it, it's going to show people that like, look, if these folks can take on Amazon, if these folks can take on Starbucks, you can talk to your coworkers about wages. Like you can totally. call a union rep. Like you can take on your boss. If they can do it, so can you. You may have been like, alluding to this, but this was a story in the New York Times somewhat recently that was about like the current labor push having some element of the fact that college educated workers are mm. in. Oh yeah, I just read that. You know, maybe finding class solidarity in the workplace that could not have existed for a prior generation because that generation wasn't as saddled with student debt or they couldn't ascend socioeconomically in the same way as their parents. I wonder what you make of that as an idea and what that could possibly mean for labor in the country. I think that there's, not even just in the past year, I think in the past few years, if not past few decades, there's been a reimagining of what a worker is, who a worker is, who a union worker is, because work for a lot of people does not look the same way it looked in 1934 or 1973. And even people who are still doing the same jobs that we had in those years, like, things have changed for them, too. Right. And, like, just seeing all this discourse around, like, quote-unquote white-collar work or college-educated workers, like, 
I think it's good to talk about it because I think there is still this enduring idea of who a union worker is. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of folks, they think of white guys in a hard hat that look like my dad. But (laughs) there's a lot of other people there, too. The fact that I'm in a union is kind of part of this shift, right? Like when we organized at Vice back when I was the heavy metal editor there, the only resistance we really encountered was not that people were anti-union. It was that they didn't know what a union was Mm. or how it could apply to them. And their unions were a lot of different things like video game workers. Work is changing and workers are changing. But the one thing that hasn't changed is that workers need unions. So, Josie, that was my conversation with labor journalist Kim Kelly. We'll have some links to some good reporting about the Amazon vote in our show notes, as well as where you can find Kim's book. It's really good. I highly recommend it. More on the American labor movement soon, but that is the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. What a Day is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S., with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. We love Fast Growing Trees here I keep telling you that the many plants that I've gotten from these folks are yet hanging on. Um, And that's not because I have a green thumb, okay? This spring, fast-growing trees, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code WAD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code WAD at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code WAD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's get to some headlines. Headlines. There might be another COVID surge in South Africa as the number of cases there have tripled in the past week. And if you have lost count at this point, this could be the beginning of the country's fifth wave. Wow. The spike is linked to two subvariants of the Omicron variant, BA4 and BA5. Scientists are looking at how the new subvariants are evolving and how immunity from vaccines and previous infections hold up. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but early data suggests that at least in people who are not vaccinated, these subvariants may be able to evade immunity resulting from infections by earlier Omicron subvariants, which is not a good sign, to say the least. Uh, what scientists are most interested in finding out right now, though, is if this new wave creates more mild or more severe illness for people. It is still too soon to tell, but we should be on the lookout because BA4 and BA5 have already made their way to the U.S. As of Friday, only a small number of cases had been reported here, but we will be sure to update you when we know more. Yeah, yesterday we had some good COVID news, and here comes Gideon, breaking our hearts again. Sorry. We blame you for all of it. I'm really sorry. The International Skating Union, or ISU, proposed a new rule yesterday to raise the age minimum for competing in the Olympics and other international competitions. Skaters can currently compete at 15 years old, but the proposal calls for a gradual change to 17 over the next two years. The ISU's proposal cites medical concerns for young skaters like eating disorders and long-term injuries. A similar proposal was brought forth in 2018, but failed to pass. However, the council re-upped this just months after Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva competed in the 2022 Beijing Olympics. 
She was favored to win big, 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 but then a drug test found a banned substance in her system after the games began. Valieva, who was 15 at the time, was still allowed to compete, but during her individual skating competition, she seemed to crumble under pressure and got fourth place. After a harrowing performance, she left the ice rink in tears. Several skaters, including American champion Mariah Bell, have already supported this new proposal. Members of the ISU will vote on this measure when they meet next month, and if passed, this rule could be in place for the 2026 Olympics in Italy. Trump may have built his house in Florida, but his spiritual home is located elsewhere in the many courtrooms of this great nation. Uh, Yesterday, yet another state opened its legal arms to the former president when a special grand jury was selected in Georgia to investigate him for criminal meddling in the state during the 2020 election. Of Trump's many ongoing legal battles, some experts think this is the one where he is in the most danger. Uh, You may remember Trump's January 2021 phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he told Raffensperger, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is what he would have needed to overturn the election. Uh, Trump later described that call as, quote, perfect, perhaps even more so than my call with the Ukrainian president, using the word perfect here to mean very stupid. Trump allegedly made similar attempts to influence Georgia's then-acting attorney general. The newly assembled special grand jury in Georgia will have one year to issue a report on whether they believe criminal charges against Trump are warranted. And during that year, they will have the power to subpoena witnesses and documents. Also in coup attempt-related news, a 20-year veteran of the NYPD was convicted yesterday of assaulting a Capitol Police officer during the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Like a revolutionary war hero, but in wraparound Oakley's, he used a flagpole as a weapon. Ah, Lord. Pete Davidson is doing what any man in his 20s would do if given the opportunity to date Kim Kardashian, taking it very, very, very seriously. (laughs) His latest romantic gesture is playing out in the medium of body art with a new tattoo that seems to feature the initials of Kim and her four children on Pete's collarbone. The tattoo reads KNSCP. Presumably, Kim North St. Chicago and Psalm. Fans spotted it in images taken over the weekend. It's not Pete's first tattoo honoring Kim. He has a couple of others, including one that says, My girl is a lawyer. She is not. But it is Pete's first tattoo dedicated to the children Kim shares with Kanye West, who is not known for responding with patience and empathy when he feels he's being insulted, (laughs) in particular when he feels like he's being insulted by Pete Davidson. Correct. In other news out of the Kardashian-verse, a Los Angeles jury ruled against the model Black China in her defamation case against several members of the Kardashian family yesterday. China had sued for $140 million, alleging that Kim, her mom, and her sisters pressured the network E to cancel her show Rob in China. The jury found that whatever pressure the Kardashian-Jenners exerted on E, it had no impact on the show's cancellation, and they also found that none of the Kardashian-Jenners had defamed Black China. The Kardashian Jitters weren't present for the reading of the verdict because they were at the Met Gala. It's important to know your priorities. It is. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. Check out the latest episode of Stuck with Damon Young. This week, Damon discusses mental health and the benefits of therapy with Kiese Lehman and Dr. Joy Harden Bradford. Listen to all episodes of Stuck with Damon Young for free only on Spotify. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, support your girl who is a lawyer, and tell your friends to listen. If you don't have a girl who's a lawyer, I will be your girl who is a lawyer. (laughs) And also, not really a real lawyer. And if you're into reading and not just cryptic letters on Pete Davidson's skin, like me, What a Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at cricket.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. I'm Gideon Resnick. And And bad bad luck luck out out there, there, J.D. Vance. Vance. 
but also bad luck Josh Mandel. Everybody, bad luck to all of you. Uh, yeah, not too many winners in the group per se. But someone has to be a winner. That's the bummer about this. Someone does have to be a winner. That's how it works. What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Jazzy Marine and Raven Yamamoto are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me, Gideon Resnick. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.